Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for May 13th, 2022. I'm Joy LaClaire. It's the merry month of May, and that means it's time for more Radio Goes to the Movies editions of Forthright Radio, previewing for you outstanding films that will be screening at the upcoming Mendocino Film Festival the first weekend of June. It has been my honor and pleasure to have done this every May since the year after the film festival began, save only the COVID hiatus. This particular Radio Goes to the Movies was originally scheduled during KZYX and Z's pledge drive and was produced to be interspersed with requests to you listeners to support Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. But you so generously responded to pledge your hard-earned funds to keep this venerable community institution alive, thriving, and establishing its new mothership in Ukiah that the drive ended early as promised after meeting our goal. I am inspired and gratified and grateful to each of you who made this happen. However, that left me with an incomplete patchwork of material, which I had to quickly sew together into the quilt you're about to hear, with only a few hours of advance warning. Each of the filmmakers featured today created films that focus on indigenous peoples from the most ancient to the most contemporary. We'll hear them in reverse chronological order. We begin with Alex Pritz and his film, the territory. Alex gained unprecedented access to individuals and communities engaged in the life and death struggle in the state of Rondonia in the Brazilian Amazon rainforest. Those of the remaining Uru Uwawa people and the invaders or destroyers of their supposedly protected rainforest as they see them, or settlers as the invaders see themselves. The parallels with the European invasion of North America, as well as the struggle of those who have devoted their lives here in Mendocino County to protecting our own temperate rainforests, are poignant and at times painful to watch. This will be followed by interviews with Dan Golding, whose film Chasing Voices, the story of John Peabody Harrington, details the life of J.P. Harrington, who in the early 20th century recorded and transcribed more than 150 North American Indian languages before the last speakers died, and whose work is being used today to resurrect the languages for new generations of their ancestors. And finally, Gustavo Vasquez discusses his film, Keepers of Corn, in which he explores the ancient agronomy of various indigenous peoples of Oaxaca, showing how their cosmology, traditions, and methods are very much alive today, and how forces such as the agribiz industry and academia, with their ethos of exploitation and commodification, clash with the co-evolutionary and communitarian culture of these keepers of corn. And now, the interview with Alex Pritz. Welcome to Radio Goes to the Movies, Alex Pritz. Hi, Joy. Thank you so much. Alex, your film, The Territory, opens with Brazilian settlers with their chainsaws driving into the rainforest of the legally designated territory of the Uruuawo people, cutting down trees and burning slash for their farms and herds of cattle. And then words come on the screen 
In the 1980s, the Brazilian government first contacted the indigenous Uruuawau people from a population of thousands fewer than 200 remain today. Their territory is now an island of rainforest surrounded by farms. Now, Alex, your film then shifts to scenes of the Uruuawau people themselves, focusing on a teenager, Bizete, that we soon also meet a Brazilian woman, Nadinha, who has been an advocate for them and for their rainforest for decades. The documentary moves between them and two kinds of settlers or invaders as Bizete's people experience them. Sergei is a middle-aged farm worker who wants to have land of his own and pursues a path through the legal system. And Martins, who illegally goes deep into Uruuawo territory, cuts and burns and begins a homestead. So, Alex Pritz, when did you begin this film project and how did you get such extraordinary access to these very different people? Thank you so much. We started this film in 2018. So as Bolsonaro, who's now the president of Brazil, was gearing up in his campaign and we saw his campaign rhetoric becoming more vitriolic and really hyping people up to go and, and invade this protected indigenous land. And so I have been really interested in and admired the work of Nadinha, the Brazilian activist who you mentioned, and saw that her work was going to become much more difficult if Bolsonaro was elected president of Brazil. Budgets would be slashed for environmental protections and people like her that are sticking their neck out advocating for the forest were going to be persecuted in a new way. And so set out to meet Nadinha and talk to her about her life. And really quickly after Bolsonaro was elected, we saw this dramatic shift in tone and a huge wave of invasions came across multiple parts of the Amazon. And so we just started filming and, and one thing led to another. It's the old story of the Western view of the biosphere as a resource commodity to be exploited and the indigenous experience of the biosphere as indivisible from themselves, or at least as relatives in the sense of family. I have to tell you, it brought up so much for me living, as I acknowledge, on indigenous land here in Montana and our listeners in California. And the whole story we know about, you know, manifest destiny and all that, and seeing it happen again there, that part was very hard for me. But I'm very grateful to you for showing all these different sides. Let's focus on the young Bizete. He's a teenager, and he's made the leader of his people. Tell us about him. Yeah, Bizete is this remarkable young man. He was 18 when we first met him. And as you mentioned earlier, his the Uruwau people were forcibly contacted by the Brazilian state in 1981. So Bitete's grandfather, his father, grew up in isolation from the Brazilian state. And because of that, in some ways, their ability to self-advocate in relation to the government is something that they're figuring out as they go. The idea of government and media and advocacy and all these things were really quite foreign to the older generations. And so given these huge threats that their community faces, they decided to elect Bitete to become their leader. And so as an 18-year-old, really a kid when we first met him, who was interested in playing soccer and school and flirting with girls, was given this huge responsibility to protect his community from these 
innumerable threats. You've got gold miners, you've got illegal loggers, you've got settlers, and those threats become quite violent as the film goes on. At one point, you know, I won't give anything away in a big way, but there's some real violence against his community that's committed. And so following Bitete, as he moves from this, this young man into this really capable, self-assured, confident leader, was one of the main things that we were really interested in in the making of this film. This film was very different from anything that I've seen before in several ways. And one of them is showing the Uru-Uwawa people in their homeland, beautiful rainforests, which is in such stark contrast to the man-made deserts surrounding them. And even though they continue their culture and their ancestral ways, they do it very integrated into modern technology. Everything from cell phones to motorbikes to boats with engines to drones. Talk about that aspect of their lives and how swiftly their lives have gone from I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but basically a Stone Age existence to this web of the internet for one thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the things that Bitete represented to his community was the ability to take this message and, and culture that they've developed over tens of thousands of years. They have a really rich, beautiful culture. They speak their own language, Tupi Kawahiva, that's spoken by thousands of people left on earth. And Bitete was able to take this experience and translate it into film and media. And he was very savvy when it came to working with journalists and for them, that was a, a real lifeline to be able to sound the alarm that these invasions were happening on one side, but then on the other side for self-expression and, and to be able to preserve a language and a culture and, and a way of life. Bitete saw, saw technology in particular as, as a really crucial means to do that. In the film, you see Bitete uh, get drones and, and things like this as well, which one thing that's important to explain is that the land that Bitete has, you know, described as an island of rainforest surrounded by farms. And that's really what it is when you look at it from a satellite image. It's this dark green plot of rainforest and on three sides, just absolute desertification, farmlands for soy and cattle. And that land is huge. If that was in the US, it would be three size, three times the size of the state of Delaware. So 183 people in Bitete's Uruwau community and three times the size of the state of Delaware of, of rainforest they're protecting. And they're doing it not just on behalf of themselves, but the rest of the world too, because the rainforest is this crucial buffer against the effects of climate change. And so drones and tools like this allow Bitete to surveil much further than he would have on foot. 10 years ago, they would have had to go walk a week maybe to go find an invasion site and report it to the police. With a drone, it can be a 45-minute flight over the tops of some hills. And so it's really allowed them to expand their message and translate this crisis that they're experiencing into terms that, that the Western government will appreciate, evidentiary proof and things like this. How did you navigate the plights of Sergio, for example? He's a farm worker. He's 49 years old, and he spent his whole life working other people's lands. We see him dripping with sweat, digging post holes for some landowner. And he says, when you feel the suffering that surrounds you, he says, you begin to realize what needs to change. The Iruawa don't farm or create anything. They just live there. So I think it's poorly divided. 
And others talk about how there's only 183 of them and they've got all this land. What I want us to talk about is Sergio's approach versus Martine's approach. Martine feels entitled just to forget about the law. I need it. I'm going in and taking it. So talk about Sergio's approach first. Yeah. So there's all different types of people that are are currently invading indigenous land in Brazil. And one of the, the main tactics of these groups is to band together into networks and then use that strength in numbers to appeal to politicians for political support, try to get lawyers donated, try to create some maps and, and false documents that can support their claim of ownership to this land. And so Sergio represents this more cerebral documents forward approach. He's trying to take something that's currently illegal and make it legal. And Martin's, on the other hand, doesn't really care one way or another about the law. He thinks that he, he deserves this land because he needs it. But really, to me, they both embody this same sense of entitlement that you were talking about. But I also, in a certain sense, understand a, a bit about where they're coming from because their parents immigrated to Brazil. And there was a policy in the 70s and 80s and 90s in Brazil akin to the 40 acres and a mule policy in the United States, where if you came and you cut down a certain amount of forest, you would get title to it because that was taking a useless forest and turning it into a productive piece of land that could propel the country forwards. And so in their eyes, they see themselves as these heroic pioneers going forwards and, and building something from nothing. That's the Brazilian dream, as Sergio calls it. And so within their lifetime, that's gone from being something that's celebrated to something that's being persecuted and, and criminalized. And of course, I completely vehemently disagree with, with everything they're doing, but I, I do think it's important to try to understand their motivations and their perspective, because if we're really going to get to the root of this problem, I think we have to look at the individuals that are committing these acts of violence and destruction and, and try to meet them where they are in terms of their needs and their families and everything else. It's also important to note that people like Sergio and Martins are, are poor and marginalized by a lot of the same systems that are keeping environmental groups, activists, indigenous communities marginalized as well. Sergio thinks and Martins thinks that the indigenous groups have too much land. Really, the people that control most of the land, agricultural land in Brazil, are large landowners and, and farmers, ranchers. And so when Sergio and Martins go out and colonize new land, they're going to sell that back to these mega ranchers that are obscenely wealthy. And that's perpetuating the exact same system that put them in this undesirable position of going out and doing this work of taking over protected land in the first place. Bitate says the Association of Rio Bonito, that's the organization that Sergio has created, says they want our land, but I think they want more than that. They want us to disappear. We're not going to let that happen. And that is really what the story comes down to. Everybody thinks they're fighting for their own survival. And your story doesn't actually end in resolution, but it is so informative at many different levels. And I very much appreciate that you had these different points of view and you've shown them visually. What was it like for you to actually be filming as the invaders were cutting and burning? You got very close to the flames. Yeah, we, we were we were right up in it. That's that's how I like to shoot. But I think it's important to say first that the impetus and the motivation from my side to go and film with Sergio and Martins came from Nadinha and Bitate, the young indigenous leader and his mentor, the environmental activist. 
they had a bit of journalism fatigue when I first met them. They said, all these people come and they spend two weeks and we chaperone them and take them to see the deforestation and they interview the activists and environmental leaders. And we haven't really seen much change for us here on the ground based on that. So if we're going to embark on this film together, and the film really did end up being a, a co-production between our outside film team and the Uruwawau indigenous community, we said, if we're going to work on this together... We want you, Alex, to go out and talk to these people that are committing these acts of destruction and violence, because we're not the ones causing the conflict. We're the ones that have inherited this conflict from the outsiders. And so that began this long, slow process of building a relationship and access to these farmers networks that were doing this. And it was scary at first, you know, it's like these guys are, they're, they're wild. It's, there's not much rule of law in these places. And they were really intimidating at first. But over the course of the three and a half, four years it took to make the film, I think we did develop a relationship and an understanding of each other. And that's what led to access like those scenes of them illegally burning the forest that you mentioned. Our time is drawing to the close. There is so much more in your film, The Territory, Alex Pritz. What one thing that we haven't gotten to do you want our listeners to be sure to be aware of? Something you mentioned at the start. I'm American. I'm not indigenous. And I, I live here in the United States. And I think it's easy to look at a film like this and think, oh, wow, what a horrible thing happening over there in Brazil. But the similarities to what has happened and is continuing to happen here in the United States in regards to indigenous communities, I think is really important for us all to reflect on and, and look at our own relationship to the land we inhabit, the native groups of our own regions and and think about that a little bit as we as we watch the film and you know I'd also encourage everybody to go see it in theaters it'll be coming out August 19th in theaters across the United States it will also be screening at the Mendocino Film Festival at the Coast Cinemas at 10 o'clock a.m., both Friday, June 3rd, and Saturday, June 4th. Alex, are you going to be able to be at the Medicino Film Festival? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> That's maybe a question. Don't know. Uh, yeah, I hope so, <laughs> but I can't. Okay, talk. well, listeners will have to just, we'll hold you in suspense for that. <laughs> I loved the film. The cinematography was just breathtaking. And you actually shared the credit for that with Tangai Uruwawa. Yeah. So it's a major part of the film is handing over the camera and sharing power and creative control with the community that the film is about. And so I was honored to be able to work alongside Tangai and, and we share that credit as co-cinematographers on the film. Thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Goes to the Movies. Alex Pritz, and for making this incredible film, The Territory. Thank you so much, Joy. It's been a pleasure. Daniel Golding, welcome to Radio Goes to the Movies. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Dan, you produced, directed, did cinematography, sound, editing, and motion graphics on your documentary, Chasing Voices, the story of John Peabody Harrington. Who was John Peabody Harrington, and what inspired you to make this film about him and his work? That's a great question. John Harrington was a very mysterious man. Just a little background on myself. I'm an enrolled member of the Quetzalcan Indian Nation here in Yuma, Arizona. I've been involved personally with language revitalization. I've been involved with master apprentice language learning. And through my research, picking up and working with my Quetzalcan language, I came across an article that was written, our Quetzalcan uh, creation story. 
And that story would happen to be written by this man, John Peabody Harrington, who was the one who translated and met with the last speaker orator who understood the creation story. He sat with them and wrote it all down. When I did that, I was like, well, who is this guy, John Harrington? And so I kind of searched him up. And I was fascinated by the fact that this guy had worked on all these different languages throughout California, all throughout the United States and North America, and compiled all these different notes on all these different languages that nobody had ever heard of him, which caused me to dig a little bit deeper. John Harrington had like this sort of natural gift to hear and understand languages. And he was real obsessed with documenting languages. So he had spent his entire life crisscrossing the United States, visiting different tribal people and documenting languages. He had a gift that he could hear the languages and understand them. And he would write them down phonetically in his own alphabet that he created that made it easier to understand. But he also became a little bit paranoid. Later in life, he had this fear that people would steal his, his work. And so he would hide a lot of it in different places. He would stash notes and hide them so people couldn't find the work that he was working on. And not till he died in 1961 did they realize that he had compiled over a million pages of notes on over 150 different native languages. And some of these languages had no speakers left. And they were able to revive his, their languages based on his notes. So that was the story of who John Harrington is. He's uh, quite a fascinating guy. What a character he was. And as you said, he was absolutely obsessed and driven. He was 18 years old in 1902 when he went to Stanford University. And he realized that entire languages were dying as the elders of these tribes were dying. And you interview people or bring footage of people talking about all the things that went into the death of of those languages. And I was very moved by one woman who said, we didn't lose our languages. They were taken from us. He had the vision and the gifts to record these languages, and he could take dictation from the elders that he visited. It wasn't just about John Harrington and his vision. People don't understand, but most of these elders and these last speakers they knew what was happening. They were totally aware of what was going on to their cultures and their languages, because this was in a time at the turn of the century where things were in very traumatic change for a lot of Native communities. And so they had the vision. They knew what was going to happen. And so they worked just as hard to save their languages as John Harrington did in documenting them. And they don't really get enough credit for what they had the vision for, but they knew what was going on, right? They fully knew what was happening, and they did whatever they could to save their languages by using Harrington as the man who could write their language down and save it for the future generations, which is happening today. In addition to your telling the story of John Harrington, you bring it to the present with the efforts of young people trying to revive their languages using the notations 
and the recordings. We have not talked about the recordings. He was a revolutionary in terms of actually recording voices and not only his note-taking. There's a conference that happens every couple of years up at UC Berkeley, which is called the Breath of Life Conference. And that's for tribal people, Native American people who have no speakers left in their communities. They're able to have access to the notes at Berkeley, but also the work that John Harrington had compiled to access those with the help of linguists to help them decipher them and use them again. So it's a piece in the puzzle of trying to bring back language because there's so many different components of it. And this is kind of a major one, especially if you had no speakers left of your language. To be able to access these notes is really priceless. Speaking of University of California at Berkeley, the most famous probably anthropologist of that era, turn of the century, was Krober. And he was, in a way, Harrington's nemesis. Do you want to talk at all about their relationship or lack of relationship? I think Harrington was jealous of Krober's fame. Krober was not worthy of all that glory. So he kind of held him a little bit in contempt of what he was and was on a mission in some ways to try to discredit him. And Krober sort of had like this other disdain of Harrington for not being responsible, not showing up for work or not turning in the work that he's supposed to do. It's kind of a unique relationship, like they, this love-hate relationship between them as colleagues. They even ended up dying within a year of each other. I got the impression from your film that in many ways, Alfred Krober thought that it was too late, that there weren't any more speakers in many of the tribes. And so he sort of thwarted Harrington's efforts. And Harrington was convinced and he went and found elders. And in some very obscure places, he almost died of typhoid. He got lost in the desert and almost died there and numerous other things. I mean, this man was obsessed, even though he kind of rejected the European culture. He was paranoid, as you said, about his work being ripped off and all that. Many of the Indian bands and tribes welcomed him, even cared for him in his last days as he was deteriorating. I found that part of your film very moving. With respect to Krober and his relationship, Krober, I don't think he was really a linguist. So he didn't have like a sort of a deep understanding of the importance of language. He was more into physical anthropology and gathering of, of materials and things like that. Whereas Harrington was really all about, I mean, that was his love, right? He loved languages. He spoke, I don't know how many different languages fluently, but he spoke, I think, like 10 or 12 languages fluently. He just had a natural ear for it. So he felt like Krober was not giving doing due diligence or due justice for the languages of Native people. And so when Krober would write off the language as being dead or no more speakers, Harrington set out to prove them wrong. And so he would search and scour communities to find one more speaker that might be there to prove his case and that there's more speakers there as well. So that was part of Harrington's obsession of how he was. Dan, you bring great humanity to this film in many ways. You have interviews with some of very old women who are the last speakers of their bands and tribes. 
And you also have a lot of footage of Harrington's assistant, Jack Marr, whom he met in 1932 when Jack was the age of 13. Harrington was not only interested in the spoken word, but he understood the importance of song. And he and Jack Marr went everywhere they could in top secret with their recording device. Just a little bit about Jack Marr. I'm glad you brought him up. He's kind of a little bit of an unsung hero. Harrington actually rented an apartment from Jack Marr's mother. Jack Marr befriended Harrington, and Harrington would hire Jack to assist him on these adventures to go meet and record Native people. And he was just a boy, like 13, 14 years old. He would drive Harrington around because Harrington did not like to drive. So he would take Jack along to drive him to these places. And when Jack got older, he hired him to go out on his own, 15, 16-year-old, 18-year-old boy. Once the technology, once they, these recording machines became more uh, advanced, to go back and record some of the speakers that he had wrote the phonetic writings down of the language. So he would send Jack all over with this recording machine to follow up, go meet these people, which was pretty amazing for Jack. When I interviewed Jack for the film, he was already 92 years old, and he passed away shortly after we did that interview. And so I was able to at least capture Jack's story, personal experiences on camera before he passed. I thought that was pretty amazing. But one thing about Harrington, which was really, really important to him, was place names. And he really had this passion to document indigenous place names. And so he would create maps, and he would draw places with the original native place names for that region, for the tribes, which is very important, especially today, because I think there's a real push to have places changed back to their original name before Western colonization, to the original place names. Catherine Callahan, Professor Emeritus of Linguistics from Ohio State University, and she was designated to organize the warehouses of Harrington's work, part of the mystery that the detective work in your film involves that aspect. Dan Golding, Chasing Voices, the story of John Peabody Harrington, is going to be screened at the Mendocino Film Festival on June 5th at Crown Hall at 1 p.m. It's sponsored by Thanksgiving Coffee, and it's going to be shown with three other short films, Awaken, Shiskale, Blessing the Acorn, and Pomo Land Back. Now, I noticed that one of the filmmakers for Awaken is Nathaniel Golding. Is he any relation to you? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So Awaken is a film that my son made. When he made it, he was 14. We got a small grant from California Humanities for me to work with some youth here on the reservation. And so that's a youth-produced film that my son and a couple of other people from the reservation made. And so I think it's great that they're going to show that one. It's a really great film. I think they did a really great job in telling the stories of the youth today and trying to connect and hold on or have a foot in both worlds, right? Stay within the traditional world, but also have your foot in the modern world in some respects. So I'm glad you brought that up. It's going to be a wonderful show with these four films on June 5th at Crown Hall at 1 p.m. Final words, Daniel Golding, for our listeners before we say goodbye. 
If you're interested in finding the notes, they're online. They're at National Anthropological Association website. You just Google John Harrington Archive. You'll find them there and use them. The notes are there for people from those tribes to be able to speak their languages and stuff. And if you happen to be up in Mendocino, check out the film. If you can, it's also available on PBS Passport and through Canopy.com for educational distribution. And check it out and learn a little bit about Native America and John Harrington and our push to save our, our languages. Are you going to be at the Mendocino Film Festival for the screening? Yeah, both myself and my family are going to make the drive up from Arizona to be at the festival. My son will be there, too, so I'm looking forward to it. Dan Golding, thank you so much for being our guest today on Radio Goes to the Movies and particularly for making this marvelous film, Chasing Voices, the story of John Peabody Harrington. I very much appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time to call me. Welcome to Radio Goes to the Movies, Professor Gustavo Vasquez. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Your film, The Keepers of Corn, opens with a voice saying in the Zapotec language with English subtitles, Corn was not domesticated by man. Man was domesticated by corn. And throughout the film, which explores the ongoing relationship of indigenous farmers in Oaxaca, Mexico, to their ancestral ways revolving around corn, the ancient comes up against the unfolding disasters of modernism. So I have to ask you as a beginning, what inspired you to make this timely and beautiful film? Two friends of mine went to Ejido Unión Zapata, which is a town in Oaxaca, an exchange of seeds. The different farmers from different parts of Oaxaca gather in this particular special town to exchange seeds. But it's not only corn, all kinds of variety of seeds from different milpa and different plants that are native to Oaxaca. And when I saw photographs that my friends sent me because they were fascinated, it was sacred, gorgeous, incredible colors of corn that I'd never seen before because I grew up in northern Mexico. And I was impressed by the way they presented, the way they handled the corn, the way they created mandalas to showcase the seeds. What's fascinating, too, is that they've been doing this for hundreds of years, and there's no money exchange. And the community that welcomes everybody out, the ones that are hosting, they feed everybody, not only the farmers, but the public, everybody. That. So they're very generous. And to me, to see those photographs was the inspiration to take that journey and make a documentary on native corn as something so important. I eat tortillas every single day of my life. You portray the art that just suffuses their lives with, as you said, the color and the arrangements and the generosity. And it's in such stark contrast to the individualism that seems to govern our lives in North America. So you have the beautiful filming, but you also go into the serious impacts of modern agriculture. And one of the people that you feature is Susanna Harp, the senator from Oaxaca, and she says that Mexico has the highest rate of obesity in children in the entire world, and Mexico is the second highest for adults. Talk about the impacts of that as opposed to the traditional diet. 
The traditional diet is as is illustrated in the documentary. Talks about how healthy and how these corns, the native corns, have a lot of nutrition, nutritious value. But yes, two of the main challenges for the culture, the people of Mexico and the indigenous communities, is all the food that was dumped, junk food that was dumped into Mexico as part of the first NAFTA treaty in 1994. That's why the Zapatistas, indigenous communities, rebelled against that treaty because they knew it was a wave of consumerism. Mexico opened the doors, the government, to allow all these chain foods companies from the U.S. to go there and take over and sell all their uh, products that are very harmful to, to our health. Like Coca-Cola is cheaper than water and, and milk and a lot of other products. If you go to the new modern market, many people think that that's part of progress, but it's not. As a consequence, we see 20 years later, 30 years later, it has created a real serious health problem in the country. On the other hand, there's the chemicals that Bayer and uh, Monsanto sell in Mexico too for the farms that go against the health of uh, the land and the people. I loved what Susanna Harp said about that, the use of Monsanto's glyphosate and that they were bought by Bayer. So the glyphosate contaminates the food and the water sources and makes people sick. And then Bayer sells them things to make them well. It's it's a pretty nifty circle they've got going. So you are a professor at University of California at Santa Cruz, and you feature two other professors at two other University of California campuses, Ignacio Chapela from UC Berkeley and Alan Bennett, Distinguished Professor of Plant Sciences at UC Davis. And they make a very interesting dialogue. They're not necessarily talking to each other, but the UC Davis professor is interested in studying these ancient, what they call land races of corn, with the intention of genetically modifying, perhaps, or patenting what he finds, whereas Ignacio Chapela's approach is very different. Would you expand on that, please? Alan Bennett, like many other Western scientists, have this myopic perception of plants as products with the notion that land waste happens in the wild by themselves. And they take away the important relationship with humans, with uh, indigenous communities. And there's little recognition or no recognition of uh, indigenous science. These indigenous scientists have figured out a way to understand nature and to go through a co-evolution. On the other hand, Chapella has a clear understanding of the importance of that relationship between humans and the plants. And he describes that humans are part of nature and we are inseparable from nature. The other thing that in that conversation illustrates is that there's this notion that land races are like from the past, but they're actually the most modern seed. Every single year, through the process of selection, the indigenous communities, the farmers, select it for the properties that are interested in the plant, and they choose those seeds that are going to be the seeds for the next year, which means that those plants that they're selecting are adapting to the climate changes, to the soil, to the transformation of all the environment, and those are the best seeds that most likely will survive the following years. 
So in that debate, I think that once again, we have this intellectual debate between Western values and indigenous values. And the Chapella, growing up in Mexico as a Mexican scientist, as well as other scientists, have this good understanding that the plants and the humans generate cultures and are inseparable. In other words, if the seeds, the native seeds, will disappear, the culture disappears with it. Because the calendars and the way of life and rituals are all connected to the calendar of, of the corn. And the sacredness of it, your film just pervades that, how it's all tied up with the family and the respect for the elders and the ancients. We in North America, we're kind of like brainwashed to think that modern is the peak of evolution and its best. And we're learning through disasters and, and other things that that is not necessarily true. And in fact, I was very impressed with a statement that Ignacio Chapella makes at the end. He says, and he says this very firmly, industrial agriculture is declining. It's on its way out within a generation or two. And that begs the question, what agriculture will replace it. And Gustavo, your film is very inspiring in terms of what we should be grateful for and honor that these farmers in Oaxaca have stayed firm to the evolutionary processes that their ancestors have created, which they continue, because if we're going to survive, we need this information and these processes. And he goes on to say that the best way to ensure guaranteed food in the future for humanity is for these indigenous communities to continue what they have practiced for thousands of years. Basically, the Monsanto and the genetically modified foods are frozen in time. They don't change, they don't evolve, and there is no guarantee that they will survive climate change. On the other hand, the whole hard work and whole process of empirical science in selecting the particular seeds for the following years, adapting to those changes, it is really the way of the future because it's been proven for thousands of years that there has been like different plastic environmental changes too. And it has adapted and corn specifically has an incredible ability to adapt. That's why it grows from the sea level up to 10,000 feet or 11,000 feet. So that's a very important scientific understanding. Even the, the seeds that were collected seeds from all over the world and have them, in, I believe, in Sweden, in banks, in seed banks, in the 1960s, if we take them out today and plant them, there's no guarantee that they will grow because they haven't been evolved in the past 50 years. So we have to pay attention and learn from those indigenous communities of the world to keep their rice, the potatoes, all of those native original seeds that are evolving to continue doing that and don't buy into this mythology with the economic interest of GMOs. Yeah, and that's one of the things I found especially inspiring, how successful the people you feature in your film, Keepers of Corn, that they are outside of the commodity model, the money model, 
For example, the Valle Nacional group of organized farmers who collect seeds from across the region to build a seed bank, and they distribute a certain amount of seed, not for sale, but to lend, they say, to the farmers on the condition that he grows whatever the seeds are for and then returns to the bank double the amount of seed that he was lent. This is just a wonderful idea to me. Yes, again, seeds are not only because they're sacred, but they're worth more than money. But this is our source of life. And that's why money will disappear, will, will, will dissipate very quickly. That's why what's important is for the banks to grow in seeds, not in money. That's what he says very clearly from Florencio, from the Chinantla. And one of the things that attracted me to Oaxaca, too, is because many of these indigenous communities continue with their language, their culture, their relationship with the land. But at the same time, they have a self-government system that is pre-Hispanic with variables and changes. But for the most part, the Tequio is a form of community efforts to do work that benefits the community. So the community gets together and they say, you know, we want to we want to build a, a basketball court and everybody works and everybody dedicates at least one day a week to help and make it a reality. It's explicitly demonstrated in the documentary that the attitude is not, it's not work, it's not like, oh, I have to go and do this. It's more like, like a fiesta party, a gathering, an opportunity to exchange notes, to catch up with neighbors and friends. And, uh, and continue to know each other and to eat together and work together. But it's not like an attitude of, I have to do this. But rather, this is good. It's a different attitude. It's a different cosmology with different value systems. And I think that the West, the industrialized nations in other countries, especially that think that they're the best, they have to get a little more humble and learn from indigenous communities. There's a lot to learn from them. Well, that model sounds a lot like community radio as a model also. I do have to ask you, are you going to be attending the screenings at the Mendocino Film Festival? The Keepers of Corn are going to be shown on Friday, June 3rd at 7.30 at the Mendocino Theatre Company, and then again on Saturday, June 4th at 4 p.m. in Crown Hall. Will you be able to be there? Yes, I will be present and I would love to welcome uh, the community in Mendocino area for Bragg and be able to um, listen to them and see what are their impressions about the documentary. Hopefully it will inspire people to uh, make some changes. You have a receptive audience in Mendocino County, I can tell you that much. Well, some final words, Gustavo, before we have to say goodbye. Well, the final words would be that one of the things that inspired me about the documentary is that it offers possibilities that if we create alliances, like in this case, we have the indigenous communities, the farmers, activists, scientists, and chefs doing a coalition to help each other and create a circle to sustain these native seeds into the future, and we can all be part of that. I hope that it inspires more people to be part of this consciousness, awareness, and actively do something for the next generations. I think it will. You've done some really good work here. Thank you very much for making this beautiful film, The Keepers of Corn, Gustavo Vasquez. We very much appreciate it. And for joining us today on Radio Goes to the Movies. Thank you, Joy. And thanks to the community. Todos están bienvenidos. Everybody's welcome. Hope to see you there. 
Given the release of Samuel Alito's draft decision in the matter of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, in which he writes, quote, We hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled, end quote. Alito's draft ruling would overturn the decision by the New Orleans-based Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that found that the Mississippi law ran afoul of Supreme Court precedent by seeking to effectively ban abortions before viability. Alito's draft argues that rights protected by the Constitution, but not explicitly mentioned in it, so-called unenumerated rights, must be strongly rooted in U.S. history and tradition. He wrote, quote, The inescapable conclusion is that a right to abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions, end quote. Ed Pilkington points out in an article in The Guardian on May 6, 2022, headlined, Samuel Alito, the abrace of justice taking abortion rights back to the 17th century, and I quote from it, the draft draws heavily from two treatises written by an English jurist, Sir Matthew Hale, describing abortion as a great crime, no matter that Hale was writing in 1673, or that his distinguished career included securing the execution of two women as witches, and writing the definitive text for a marital rape exemption that said that husbands cannot be culpable of raping their wives because, by their mutual matrimonial consent and contract, the wife hath given up herself. Alito leans on Hale and other voices from the distant past to underline his main contention that, quote, the Constitution makes no reference to abortion, end quote, and as a result, there can be no constitutional right, end of quoting that article. Asserting that nowhere in the Constitution is the word abortion mentioned brings to stark highlight that nowhere in the Constitution is the word woman mentioned either. Liberal justices seem likely to take issue with Alito's assertion in the draft opinion that overturning Roe would not jeopardize other rights the courts have grounded in privacy, such as the right to contraception, to engage in private consensual sexual activity, and to marry someone of the same sex. Quote, we emphasize that our decision concerns the constitutional right to abortion and no other right. Nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion, end of the quote. A lifelong Catholic who has frequently expressed his fear that the U.S. is moving away from traditional values, the justice has also been at the forefront of the conservative push to advantage religious belief against individual liberty. He wrote the majority opinion in the 2014 Hobby Lobby case that allowed Christian-run companies to forego contraception in their health insurance packages. Roe v. Wade was decided 7-2 in 1973, with five Republican appointees joining two justices nominated 
dominated by Democratic presidents. Aside from Clarence Thomas, the justices likely to sign on to this opinion were all appointed by presidents who attained the presidency by winning the Electoral College while losing the popular vote. And the Senate majority that confirmed them were elected by populations equaling less than 50% of the United States population. And the current expressions of outrage at the breach of the Supreme Court's privacy in the leaking of this draft, nowhere codified in law, belies the greater travesty of the denial of women's constitutional right to privacy or their sovereignty and autonomy over their own bodies. Thank you for joining us again on Forthright Radio, Rebecca Traster. Rebecca, when we interviewed you in 2018, it was during the Kavanaugh hearings, and your book, Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger, had just come out. Yeah. I wonder if you have any comments about Republican women senators Susan Collin and Lisa Murkowski, who took his assurances that Roe v. Wade was settled law seems not to be the way things are panning out now. First of all, let's be clear that it was always clear that that was not how it was going to pan out. Donald Trump, the president who appointed Brett Kavanaugh for that Supreme Court seat, had promised when he ran for president that he would only nominate justices who supported the overturn of Roe v. Wade. So it was always a lie. The line that Susan Collins is surprised that Brett Kavanaugh would have lied to her, that's garbage in itself. It's a lie. It was always clear that this is who Brett Kavanaugh was, how he would decide on a case like this. It was the fulfillment of an open and direct promise that Donald Trump had made in order to become president. And it wasn't even disguised. Donald Trump directly said, I'm only going to appoint justices who want to overturn Roe. So it was always a lie at that point. But I do think that there's something really fascinating and horrifying and chilling about how we hear different voices. Because Susan Collins believed it could be plausible, despite all open evidence to the contrary, that she could go in front of the American people and lecture them about how Brett Kavanaugh had assured her that he believed in stare decisis, that he believed that Roe was settled law, and that Susan Collins, who in part had won her Senate seat, had gained her power as a purportedly moderate Republican who had always said that she believed in abortion rights and would work to support the protection of the rights and access to abortion care in this country. That is how she gained her power, right? It's not a minimal, minor thing about her. That's how she won her seat in Maine for five terms, is via that assurance to the people she represents. But that she could go in front of the American people and the speech that she gave in announcing that she was going to vote to confirm Brett Kavanaugh was one in which she was angry at the people who had raised their voices in dissent and anger and fear about how Brett Kavanaugh was going to decide. She lectured them and lectured the American people for yelling and screaming and being angry and not believing that this guy was going to decide the way he privately assured her that he was. So think about the weighing of those different voices. She was saying, I believe Brett Kavanaugh's voice, the voice of the justice. His voice is the important one. And the rest of you who have been yelling and screaming and calling my office are the disruptive ones, the problematic ones. And that sentiment about the protesters who were so livid in 2018 
was echoed. I mean, Ben Sass, who is Collins' Republican colleague, a senator, lectured about the protesters, said that they were hysterical. He said people are going to pretend that Americans have no historical memory. And supposedly there haven't been screaming protesters saying women are going to die at every hearing for decades. Right. He was lecturing. The fact that hysteria has nothing to do with you means that, that we should ask, what's the hysteria coming from? That's what he said to Kavanaugh. He kept referring to the protest, the people insisting that there was a problem with Kavanaugh's nomination as hysterical. And those were about abortion protesters. So I want to just pause for a second and note that in that moment, the moment where the makeup of the Supreme Court was partially decided, it was before the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett and the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But that was a moment where the court's majority got sealed against Roe in one form or another. And in that moment, the voices that were being referred to as hysterical, problematic by Susan Collins, who described them as kind of aggressive and unpleasant, Those were the ones who were telling the truth about the future. And the voice that was presented as the trusted and authoritative voice, Brett Kavanaugh's, was the one who was lying. All of this goes hand in hand with the support for a kind of power structure and kind of power hierarchy, which is a patriarchy in which women and gender non-binary people's bodies aren't protected and don't have the same kind of rights and support from the state as white male bodies do, right? And those kinds of power imbalances exist in all kinds of forms. It's, It's what undergirds the ubiquity of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Harassment and assault also happens to men, but the power imbalances mean that it's far more common that it happens to women and gender non-binary people. And this is also true of limiting reproductive health care. And that's from actually limiting access to good health care. You can look in this country and see that maternal mortality rates are sky high, and that is particularly for black and brown people. You can look at cutting off access to birth control, which has been brought before the Supreme Court multiple times. The big case in recent years was the Hobby Lobby case and the drive to prevent people from accessing the contraception that they need. This is about enormous patterns of power. Who has it? Who wants to use it to oppress and subjugate other people who have less of it? And the various rulings that the court is making right now is about subjugating people who are capable of pregnancy And that goes hand in hand with all the other ways that women and gender non-binary people have been subjugated throughout this country's history. I don't think that any of us are going to have final words on this topic for the rest of our lives. I think that we are looking at a path that is going to extend, as it has extended centuries before us, is going to extend generations in front of us. And those of us who are furious about it need to buckle up and prepare ourselves for a lifetime of battle. Well, thank you very much. Rebecca Tracer for joining us on such short notice again on Forthright Radio. And of course, the views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production. I'm Joy LeClaire. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.